Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, with a message that's entitled, Giving Jesus the Credit. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> Let me put that another way. It is impossible not to notice that a great many people are in a hurry to take credit for things and to make sure that everybody knows about it. Yeah, if you're going to win in politics, that's essential. But it happens everywhere. It happens at the workplace. It happens in church. It happens in schools and universities. I think it was Blaise Pascal who once noted that even in those writings in which people declare that it's not good to seek personal aggrandizement, and yet in those very writings, said Pascal, the authors inscribe their own names. It is, as we all know, undeniably true that human beings seek to be known, seek to be admired, and seek to be given credit for something that's praiseworthy. We want our name to be honored and perhaps even remembered after we die. And so the life of Jesus seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, after all, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The difficulty with Paul's statement is that we live in a day of marketing and self-promotion. We want others to see us as talented, intelligent, capable, to be admired for our achievements. I recently saw an article entitled, Five Tips for Practicing Self-Promotion Without Being Totally Annoying. <laughs> you know, it turns out you can't just be self-promoting. You, you need to use some tact so it will not be immediately apparent what you're up to. Oh dear, the Christian life is surely an anomaly. You know, Acts chapter 3 ends with Peter's second sermon. And I've already warned you that the book of Acts is filled with sermons, and this now is the second sermon that's recorded in this book. Peter and John have just done something that in chapter 4 will be called a notable sign. That will become more undeniable as time goes on and as more people talk about it. You know, a man who had been lame from birth was sitting at the beautiful gate at the temple begging. Peter had said to him, I have no silver or gold, but I'm giving you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man's feet and ankles were instantly made strong. He rose walking, leaping and praising God. Now, of course, since this was done at one of the gates leading into the temple complex, this matter was not unnoticed. Put the matter into our terms and we should see that this should rocket Peter and John into stardom. In short order, they could have been able to start their own Peter and John ministries and they would have filled stadiums promising more miracles to anyone who came. And so it is in just such a context that we find the second Christian sermon in history. This one is all about who gets credit for the miracle. If Peter and John do, they should indeed start, you know, a very popular healing ministry for they seem to have the formula for how to do it. But if Jesus gets credit, indeed, if he gets all the credit, then the response to the miracle is going to be profoundly different in every way. So in effect, as we read this passage, we will read about healing and how to think about it, but we'll also deal with the matter of what a healing signifies. You'll notice again from the next chapter that Luke prefers to call this not a miracle, but a sign. You know, signs, although they do refer to miracles, actually shift the focus. 
Just like a sign you might see on a freeway, the importance of the sign is not actually the sign itself, but the thing to which it points. You know, in the same way, the ultimate importance is not the miracle itself, but rather the thing the miracle wants us to see. So let's start reading Acts 3, 11 to 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? We know that what set this chain of events in order was that Peter and John were on the way to the temple in order to pray at the prescribed time, which was the hour of prayer. And on the way, they miraculously healed this man born a cripple. And then now that the lame man is healed, he's creating a commotion. He's clinging to Peter and John, and when he runs around, he's not only running, he's jumping, and everyone comes to see what's going on. And furthermore, everyone knows who he is, and it's startling. It's amazing. And the crowd was now gathering at the scene. And so, seeing the large crowd, Peter seizes the moment. And as you can imagine, everybody wants to hear what he's got to say. This is, from the outset, a spellbound audience. They have seen a remarkable thing. And so at the outset, Peter wants to dispel any notion that either he or John should receive credit for the miracle. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, you'll find that miracles do occur with some level of frequency. If we fast forward to chapter 14, we'll see a very similar miracle. And this one also has the healing of a man who is crippled. But in that case, it's not Peter and John, it's Paul and Barnabas. And so in Acts 14, this happens in the city of Lystra, which is a pagan city. And then the people cry out, the gods have come to us in human form. So they assume that Paul is Hermes and that Barnabas is the god Zeus. Well, in either case, the key to both events is this. Who should get the credit for the miracle? And here in Acts 3, as Peter begins his sermon, that's the first matter that he must address. You know, at the very outset, Peter wants to dispel any notion as though either he or John had the power to heal. As far as they're concerned, the power lies in Jesus and in him alone. Now, neither do they argue that they have the piety that was necessary to heal. Now, I know that in our day, we don't tend to use the word piety, so let's search around for synonyms, shall we? You know, today we might use a phrase like personal holiness, or in, you know, more secular circles, they might use the word spirituality. You know, Peter is saying, look, the, the fact that we performed this miracle has nothing to do with how spiritual we are. Don't imagine even for a moment that this miracle reflects something about us. Please don't start a Peter and John cult. You know, we're not looking for followers, nor do we want to start the next popular ministry in Israel. So let's keep reading Peter's sermon. Having introduced his sermon by resolutely refusing to take any credit for the healing, well, Peter then describes how it is that the healing happened. I'm reading verses 13 to 18. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So you get the sense that Peter is interested in so much more than simply identifying Jesus as the author of this healing. Now, it's true that Peter does acknowledge that it was Jesus who healed the man, but in this part of his sermon, Peter has, well, two goals in mind. The first is to identify how Jesus healed him, and then the second, and this is the much more important matter, he wants to make sure that all will understand the true identity of Jesus. So let's start with a matter of how Jesus, who was now no longer among them, how it is that Jesus healed this man. So you notice that twice in verse 16, Peter mentions it was by faith. Notice he first says it was faith in his name, and then second he says it was faith that is through Jesus. So let's examine both of those expressions to make sure we understand what Peter's saying. What does Peter mean when he says the miracle happened by faith in his name? Well, we need to start by simply noticing that when Peter uses the word faith, the emphasis is not on Peter and the faith that Peter had, but rather the emphasis must be on Jesus. Now, I say that because it is possible for some to imagine that if they only had the right kind of faith, well, then anyone can make a miracle happen. And you do hear some teachers say that, you know, if you have the faith that can move mountains, then you can also speak to the lame man and he's going to walk. But did you notice that in this kind of a talk, there is a not so subtle shift of emphasis? You know, this kind of talk moves us from the object of faith, who is Jesus, to faith itself being the object of faith. I know that sounds a bit confusing, so let me suggest an example. Some time ago, someone asked me, do you believe in faith? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, no, I believe in Jesus. Faith doesn't accomplish anything. Jesus accomplishes everything. My confidence is not in how much faith I have. Rather, my confidence is how much power and authority Jesus had. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here. We're not the object of attention here. Jesus is, and that's true faith. Every week in Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Here's a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join In Doubt On Air on the indoubt.ca website the InDoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about InDoubt, or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca. We noticed that Peter said it was faith in his name, that is, the name of Jesus is the object. And then Peter adds, 
It is the faith that is through Jesus. I guess another way of saying that would be to say, it is the faith that has come through Jesus. You know, Peter means to say, look, we've been in Jesus' presence and it was he that inspired such confidence in him. Peter doesn't even have to begin to imagine that in some fashion, his strong faith in Jesus is a virtue. Look, the only virtue is Jesus. Now, how important it is for us to hear that. It is Jesus who inspires faith. Faith's not a reflection of human virtue, as if the man or woman who has strong faith has in some fashion produced some holy or godly commodity. Faith requires an object. Let me try an example. Let's say two people get on an aircraft and one says, look, I'm afraid this plane might not make it. And the other says, I have complete confidence or I have faith that we're going to make it. And so you ask the man of faith how it is that he's so confident, and he explains. You know, he's been a witness to the production of the aircraft. He knows about the planning and the design of the plane. He knows that world-class engineers have crafted it. He's aware that a management team was determined not to cut costs, but to put everything into this plane. He knows the workmanship that was put into it, and he knows how improvements have been made from past generations of planes so that this is the best plane ever built. You see, when the man of faith talks that way, his faith is not a reflection of himself. It's a reflection of what he has observed and seen, and this describes his confidence. And look, that's why Peter, in describing why he has such confidence in Jesus, goes on to explain what he means by Jesus. You know, he begins by saying that it was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who glorified Jesus. And when we hear that, we we might think of, you know, God saying to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the identity of God. And Peter means to say that Jesus stands in the line of the patriarchs and all the spiritual forefathers of Israel. Yeah, it's that God. And then he adds, among all the men whom God used to reveal himself, God has glorified his servant Jesus the most. That is to say, God raised him up and gave Jesus the greatest name among all names that have been given. Now, says Peter, contrast God's attitude toward Jesus to your attitude towards him. Peter says, look, John and I, we've had so much confidence in Jesus that we spoke to this lame man in the name of Jesus. And look, that's why he's running and jumping around the temple. On the other hand, you folks, you had a very different assessment of him, didn't you now? You disowned him. You handed him over to be disowned to Pilate, and he was the Roman authority. And if that wasn't enough, you actually judged that it would be better for an insurrectionist and a murderer to be given his freedom just so that Jesus would never be granted freedom. You preferred Barabbas to Jesus. You preferred death and murder to the author of life. You killed the author of life. That was your assessment of him. But God exalted him by raising him from the dead. And now then, Uh, Rather than pressing this matter further, Peter offers up a word of grace. He says, I know that what you did was in ignorance. You didn't understand what you're doing. And we can, as Peter say these things, almost hear what Jesus said when he was being nailed to the cross, can't we? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if I can stop here and acknowledge that most of the crowd didn't know what they were doing, but when I think specifically, maybe of the Sanhedrin or perhaps of the chief priests, These people did know what they were doing. I 
I don't think Peter has them specifically in mind when he talks about their leaders. He says, you were horribly manipulated. You acted out of ignorance. And then Peter adds, while you were shouting out, crucify him, you didn't realize that the prophets of the past foretold that the Messiah would suffer and die. See, no doubt Peter's referring to Isaiah 53. And so that's the contrast. You despise the author of life in ignorance and in a refusal to take the prophets seriously. Now then, it's undeniable that a miracle has been done. It it is undeniable that the miracle was done in the name of Jesus. And it's undeniable, both in the miracle itself and in the words of the ancient prophets and in the truth of the resurrection, that God indeed has glorified Jesus while you cried out your curses against him. Well, I could almost hear Peter pausing at this moment. He wants this reality to have its full effect. So what he says next will be the most important thing that people will hear. And Peter wants them to know it. Verses 19 to 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I hope you're beginning to notice a pattern in the sermons of Acts. I know this is only the second sermon, but when the preacher comes to the place of asking his people to come to Christ, his first words are not, you know, the ones we hear so often today. You know, in today's world, we often hear evangelists saying, receive Jesus into your hearts. But in contrast, these preachers in Acts always say, repent, turn from your sins and seek forgiveness for the gravity of your sins. You know, I remember years ago touring the city of Timisoara. It's in Romania, and it was the site where the communist dictator of that country had ordered his army to indiscriminately shoot and kill a number of Christians. Shortly after that event, the military had turned on the dictator, and then they executed him. In the square where the massacre of Christians had happened, there was a little plaque which simply read, Such is the fate of all who will not bow to Jesus. That's Peter's words. You'll want to repent now. That's because heaven has received Jesus until he comes back to restore all things. And at that time, you're not going to have time to repent. But here's the good news. If you repent now, you'll find that times of refreshing will come from heaven. Now, refreshment means everything from forgiveness of sins and the gift of regeneration to the adoption into the family of God to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that, let's follow along to the end of Peter's sermon. Here I'm reading verses 22 to 26. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you must listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You know, I'm convinced that all sermons must contain two essential elements. They must be sufficiently stern or serious, even severe enough, to give the impression that the matter under discussion is not a matter of, you know, you can take it or leave it. It was Richard Baxter who once said, I preached as never sure to preach again 
as a dying man to dying men. That's serious. What we're discussing has eternal significance. The second element of every Christian sermon is hopefulness and even an appeal to rewards. So notice the severity of which Peter speaks. He quotes from Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. You know, Moses had promised that God would raise up a prophet like him in the future. You know, and the new Moses, his words would be so serious that to fail to listen would be to forfeit one's own life. Hence, says Peter, the rest of the prophets confirmed this. Now look how Peter presents Jesus, not as one who can give you hope and meaning and fulfillment. Yeah, he can do that. Rather, he says, your response to Jesus is your choice between life and death. It's that serious. But the second ingredient here is is the ingredient of promise. You know, Peter starts by telling his listeners that they're sons of the prophets, that they're inheritors of the blessing of Abraham. That's a promise to bless the world. Look, if God has promised to bless the world through Abraham, How much more would he do that to the sons of the prophets? It's a great blessing to have your sins exposed, says Peter, so that you might turn to God. See, isn't it fascinating to find out where Peter ended? You know, all of this started as people were talking, you know, how did this miracle happen? What's the explanation of this thing? And then rather than drawing attention that God was healing people through the apostles, Peter says, no, no, this is the work of Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, you need to hear how important he is. Listen, if it's not about Jesus, if it's not about his cross, if it's not about his lordship, if it's not about his authority over all things, if it's not about the grace that he offers, if it's not about a call to repent and turn to Jesus, it's not the Christian message. It was never about us. It was always about him. John, I've got a question as we come to the end of the week, and maybe we can think about it over the weekend. Should we as Christians, as the church, be taking the message of the gospel a little bit more seriously? Well, I do know this, uh, Ben. There is, before the entire human race, the choice of life and death. We are, as it were, all standing at the precipice of a great momentous moment when Jesus returns or even when we face our own personal deaths. Uh, we will then be thrust before the judgment seat. We also know that Jesus alone is able to forgive sins. So if we take that in mind and if we at all have a loving heart and we're concerned about those who don't know Christ, uh, this is going to be utmost concern. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I'm so grateful to have a moment just to express our gratitude for offering your prayers and financial gifts this past month. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, our priority is to provide Bible teaching you can trust, uninterrupted, reaching the maximum number of people across the country, and your commitment allows this to happen. Well, in conversation with friends across Canada, it's become clear that in times of crisis, God's people are energized and sustained through a profound faith in a faithful God. But it's also clear that in times of crisis, people search for truth, something to place their confidence in when life is turned upside down. Well, thank you for continuing to stand with us and sharing God's word of truth. For more information about the ministries and resources available to you through Back to the Bible Canada, or to offer a gift to sustain this ministry, 
please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.